This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Tomorrow night, troops of little witches and wizards, ghosts and goblins will wander the street in search for candy. But if you're a child with a disability, the inaccessibility of our neighborhoods can be far scarier to you than a make-believe monster. It's one of the many ways in which a child with a disability gets left out of all the fun. And it's something that very often able-bodied adults don't even realize is a problem. The great thing about Halloween is that it makes the weird and unconventional cool and even trendy and makes space for difference and deviation. So there is room to experiment on ways to make treating accessible. Today, we discuss accessible Halloween. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. I'm Joita Gupta. Today's program is giving me the shivers in a really good way. Rich Padulo is the founder of the Treat Accessibly campaign. It's been getting a lot of attention in the media, but certainly you might have also seen the lawn signs go up in neighborhoods across Canada. He's also a really proud dad and he's going to join us today. Rich, welcome to the program. So nice of you to join us today. Thank you for having me, Joita. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. It's uh, almost upon us. The big day is tomorrow. Before we get into talking about the campaign, tell me about your decorations. Are you all decked out for the holiday? Yes, we are all decked out. We're, we're fairly uh, wonderfully busy. So we actually set up our entire decoration in our garage. Um, mm. And so literally all we have to do is open the garage door, and we're open for business on Sunday. So we're very, very excited. It's got a Batcave motif. So it's uh, it's really fun. I, I have been Batman every year since I was uh, 11 years old. I'm now 43. So I've got a lot of mileage out of my costume. <laughs> Tell me about how it got started. When did you uh, become such a big fan of Halloween? I mean, it's it's great that you were dressed up as Batman and you've been you've been maintaining that costume since you were eleven. But how did it all get started? Uh, my mother, uh, single mom, uh, really took to the nines when it came to Halloween. She allowed me to work for about two summers to afford to buy the first official Michael Keaton Batman costume in mm. 1990. And then I was probably about 10 or 11. Uh, she let me use my imagination at Halloween and we would uh, we'd get a big ladder. I'd go up on the roof of the house. Uh, not many moms would do that, but I'd go up <laughs> on the roof of the house as Batman and perch and wave to the kids as they would go oh, by. Wow. <laughs> yeah, because I was up there, they didn't realize the height variation or the fact that the Batman costume was three sizes too big for me. I actually <laughs> bought it to grow into it uh, when I was an adult. So it was very, it was very cool, and and my brothers and I always adored Halloween. And, and that's why when this movement came about, it, it was so impactful for me that children uh, living with disabilities often can't treat with other kids and have that experience, not something they can enjoy. So 
that's why this has become a passion and a responsibility, I feel, that all parents should do for our Canadian neighbors and uh, even down into the States, hopefully, very soon. I had a phone conversation with you a while back and you yeah. said, hey, don't mind, you know, I'm just driving right now. I'm going to deliver lawn signs. So this campaign is a passion project for you and for your family. But tell us about how it all got started. What was that moment where you said, wait a minute, this is a problem? Sure. It's it's like any of those kind of flashes. We were putting pumpkins on our stairs for Halloween in 2017. And I looked up and there was a family across the street. And one of the little boys, couldn't have been more than eight, uh, was using a wheelchair. And I was putting pumpkins on stairs. And it was pretty much that exact moment when the parent in me kind of imploded and thought about you know, all the parents and all the kids living with a disability who can't trick-or-treat with everybody else because I looked up and every house in our street had stairs. Mm. And the parent in me got very, very sad that other parents had to think about that for their kids. And then the kid in me thought, how can I make sure that little boy knows my home would be accessible at Halloween because that's that's the realization I came to. It's like action. And what action can we do? And I thought about it, and it's quite apropos, but I thought, okay, I'm going to create a bat signal that says my home will be accessible. And I would joke with my wife that she didn't give me the $48,000 budget I wanted <laughs> to create a bat signal. But she did um, work with me because uh, she's a brilliant marketer, and she worked with me in creating a sign. And my incredible friend, Pat Lore, created this beautiful sign. It was an iconic wheelchair symbol with a cape blowing in the wind behind it. And it had the simple words, white words on an orange background, accessible trick-or-treating. And we had a big sign, a five-foot-high sign, printed. We bought an A-frame so it would be seen both directions going down the street because we said, next time that little boy and his family goes down the street, they'll know that our home will be accessible for Halloween. And they did. And we had seven families out of the hundreds that came that, that, that Halloween in 2017. We have a very busy Halloween street. Seven families had children with disabilities, but a variety, uh, intellectual, mobility, and sensory disabilities. And they all thanked us. They said they saw the sign. They didn't know what it meant, but they knew they were welcome. And that they'd never seen anything like that before. And that was the second aha moment for us. And the day that they, we felt the responsibility to grow the movement. And, and this year, from that one sign, we anticipate there being 100,000 signs across Canada. We're, we're seeing in Winnipeg, an entire neighborhood has built a map with multiple locations where the Treat Accessibly event will happen. In Caledon, they're having a Treat Accessibly village where the city and a, and a homeowner has, has closed down a street uh, to make it accessible. So people are picking up the weight of this movement and and carrying it forward. And i, I got to tell you, the, when an 18-year-old mom contacts you and says, my my son has never treated before he's 18 but he's treating now because of your family that weight lifts because we know there's other people championing and moving the message forward 
you mentioned a couple of times that you're a parent. And when I think about that moment that you described in 2017, where the, the genesis of this campaign, you must have gone inside after having this revelation. What sort of a conversation did you have with your own children about accessible treating? It's a beautiful question. I believe that our kids are the ones who are going to change everything. And that opinion strengthened when I explained it. My daughter at the time was six, and I explained what was happening in my head, in my heart. Um, And she reflected on it, and she got it immediately and that's the only way she has actually at that year she stopped trick-or-treating at six years old in order to treat because she gets more joy out of treating from our driveway than for going trick-or-treating because she knows her her name's Sienna she's incredible and she she knows what she's doing when it comes to creating change The, the following year in her classroom, she would have been in grade two. She actually spoke to her class about accessible trick-or-treating. And this year, fast forward, she's now 10. She won the Ontario Difference Maker Award from the Rick Hansen Foundation because she's created a curriculum with them to teach accessibility in schools. And we ran the pilot uh, this year where the Education is a closed-loop system of education where the kids learn about accessible inclusion with the filter of treat accessibly in Halloween to become very engaging for them, it being the month of October. And then they're taught to take the accessible inclusion concept home at Halloween and explain it to their parents, and if they so want, to have a treat accessibly station at home. And this year alone, in pilot year, we had hoped to have two or three schools on board. There's 124 schools that received the content this year alone. And her school, the Toronto French School, has gone above and beyond. They've done multiple assemblies on treat accessibly and accessible inclusion thinking. And they've actually distributed, uh, Canadian Tire sent us or gifted us 2,000 flags to give to the Toronto French School and every student, faculty member, and staff member are taking flags home to practice Mm. street accessibility. That's the power of speaking to one child in 2017 and what can happen and expand. Our goal with the school pilot this year is to now take it across Ontario and hopefully by 2025 we'll be across Canada with it in every major school board. Rich, one of the things we often hear when accessibility comes up in conversation is, yes, we agree it's a good thing to do or it's the right thing to do, but it's too expensive to make things accessible. Has that conversation about the cost of making our treating inclusive come up at all? Or are people really just made aware of the fact that it's, it's not expensive? It's more a question of how you rearrange things on your front porch, for example? It's a, it's a brilliant question. Well, okay, let's approach it kind of from the macro or micro perspective. So from a macro perspective, it, you're right that the making accessible inclusion happen at an institutional level across our country is very difficult because many of our institutions, even Halloween, 
and many of our buildings aren't structured that way. So to retrofit or alter institutions or buildings is very difficult. We need to live in a world where moving forward, it becomes a mandate to be the standard and standardizing accessibility is about a mindset. That's why Halloween is such an important platform to that movement. Halloween is so broadly enjoyed. Yes, it's for kids. Yes, parents take out their kids and the kids go off by themselves. But many parents, many adults enjoy and celebrate the platform. So I would hazard a guess that it's one of the most widely enjoyed experiences and traditions in North America for occurring on one consistent night in one consistent model. All we're trying to do is adjust that model slightly. And it's so simple and there is no cost involved to treating from your driveway. That's really what we're asking for and sorry to get free signage that puts you put at the end of your driveway that permits your neighbors to know, A, you will have an accessible home at Halloween, but B, that you support accessibility inclusion. And treat accessibility is one of those wonderful things when you do it, when you have the same aha moment that affected our family in 2017. You start to open your eyes to, wow, there's stairs everywhere. And Mm -hmm. I mean that kind of metaphorically. And what I'm trying to say is once you buy a red car, you see red cars everywhere. Once you champion accessibility at Halloween, you start to open your eyes to how you can champion accessibility in other ways. And these homeowners that are participating on Halloween night, they go to their jobs or back to school. And when they go to their jobs, they are developing products, services, building buildings, and and, uh, adapting our culture for the future. And so when they have this Halloween experience, it can help them adjust their accessible inclusion thoughts into the, into mm-hmm. their day to day. And the kids, the kids are going to grow up with it. We live in a, in a wonderful society. I also, because of Treat Accessibly, I was uh, very humbly appointed to the Ontario Accessibility Advisory Standards Committee. We're non-political, 12 citizens that participate in, in that. And what we do there is think and, and help the government expand. And one of the things in schools is there's going to be about 180 new standards about mm-hmm. accessible inclusion. One of those key territories is socialization and how children with disabilities need to have socialization platforms that are different in order to socialize with each other, but also socialize with children without disabilities. And that's another reason the Halloween platform is so effective because everybody's already doing it together. So let's help by bringing them together. So again, while it seems very small, bring your treating station to your driveway, put a sign on your lawn. It's actually taking a real bite out of the future of accessible inclusion and really accelerating it by having everybody support it in that one night. And you know, I'll, I'll you see one sign on a street and it becomes in a good way like dandelions. The next year you see mm-hmm. multiple signs on a street. And then the next year, hopefully it becomes a treat accessibly Halloween village where they actually close down the street and anyone 
can come and celebrate. And you don't need to have a child with a disability do it because it's really about championing all parents and the future. And accessibility is incredibly important, not just for people with disabilities, but for our seniors uh, mm-hmm. to be able to navigate as well as the children. And the 6.2 million adults who identify with having an intellectual, sensory, or mobility disability. That's such a good point. You know, when you're a child with a disability and let's say you're out with a group of friends, you may be the one person who waits on the curb while everybody else goes up, you know, a flight of stairs to get candy. And that can be such a disappointing and alienating experience. So really, it's about making the experience of Halloween welcoming and inclusive to everybody, regardless of ability. But before we get into talking about the Halloween Village, because I do want to spend a few minutes just getting a sense of what that was like for you to organize and what it felt like on the ground. Just before we go there, we've talked a lot about treating out on the porch and avoiding the stairs as a way to make trick-or-treating a little more accessible and inclusive. But what are some of the other things we can do, Rich, to make sure that everyone feels welcome? Absolutely. So having a selection of non-edible treats and giving children and parents that opportunity is great. There are many uh, children that have an eating uh, disorder or an allergy, or they, if they have a certain type of disability, they can't actually ingest food. And mm-hmm. so having non-edible treats like pencils, stickers, stickers is huge. Stickers is like the love language of most mm-hmm. children. So that's a wonderful one. Removing lights that are overly stimulating and audio that's overly stimulating. And and I'm talking about the extremes. If you've got like black lights flashing, try to remove those to be more accessible. Uh, But if you have a nice uplight on your decor, don't worry, that's fine. And um, removing barriers. So if you're on your driveway, maybe you park your car on a side street or so it's a clear path to you and your station. It's, but that's kind of the beauty of treat accessibly. It's very intuitive. So once you put your treat station on the driveway and you're able to see families approaching you, you mm-hmm. very quickly can interpret what may be the potential disability involved, even though not all disabilities are visible. But if they are, you can kind of figure it out. And the parents will kind of guide you through making it a wonderful experience. It it really happens organically once you're stationed on your driveway. Mm -hmm. Our natural ability as as people who interact with other people kind of kicks in and takes over, and the parents, uh, and in a lot of cases, the children will even take over from there. But another reason going down to your curb is wonderful is there's a lot of children with intellectual or sensory disabilities that may be affected or scared or worried about going up to a door, meeting somebody they've never seen before, or even if they have, seeing them in that fashion and that timidness affects their experience and their parent has to go Mm -hmm. up with them. And this is still impacting children in their teens. So they don't want to have their parent come up to the door with them as their other friends or other kids are going up to the door as well. But having it down by the street side makes them a lot more comfortable. And I mean, all we do is we have one of those cool pop-up tables you can buy anywhere. And we just pop up a table at the end of our driveway and have a great time and hand out candy and we get to talk. And in a year where we've missed a lot of people, I mean, what a wonderful night to be able to reconnect outside 
with other people and, and and the adults who are taking their kids around. It's really it's really actually pretty fun. And I would argue <laughs> in this reset of a world where we're trying to be closer to each other and friendlier and kinder, what better night to become more community focused than a night where we were all intended to do it anyways, because that's the institution of Halloween. Speaking of uh, community and and talking and connecting with other people, one of the experiences that a lot of adults with disabilities have had, and I dare say this is true for children as well, is that the moment someone sees a person with a disability, they turn right around and they talk to the able-bodied person next to them, whether it's a friend or a family member that's accompanying them. Oh, I love your daughter's costume. Or would she like uh, a Kit Kat bar? That kind of thing. So how do we address this idea that you should talk to rather than at the person with the disability. You, what a what an insightful question, and it's brilliant. And it's again, it's part of the intuitiveness that occurs at Halloween, um, because we've all had a lot of practice over the years. Even though we, some of us may have gone out of practice last year, we all kind of remember. Just speak to the children. You know, when they come up, you speak to the children. And depending on, the parent will guide you necessarily if there's an issue with the type of candy you want to give. But by chatting directly with the kids, there's just this experience that happens with them. They may not demonstrate that they're hearing you. They may not demonstrate that, or they may not be able to respond. But just speaking to them in the same way you would any child, and you've had lots of practice with it, the same way you would have done it before is just the perfect and the exact way to engage them and speak to them. And that's one of the benefits of Halloween night. They start feeling like they're being engaged with everybody else. And that's what's what's important about making children feel special. You do it the exact same thing you would with any other child. We have a few minutes left, and I do want to get to the Halloween village. So tell me a little yeah. bit about how that went. I'm going to squeeze my eyes closed and let you paint a picture for us. Wonderful. I'd love everybody in the audience to think about Disney World for a second, even if you haven't been there, just the concept or idea of it. And that's basically what 30 homeowners did on Queens Drive on October 2nd. They decorated their homes to the nines. Imagine the best decorated home you've ever seen. Now imagine 30 of them. And now imagine every one of those 30 homes treating from the end of their driveway. And that's what happened on October 2nd. And we invited the children of Holland Borview, Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. Many of them have never had a door-to-door trick-or-treating experience in their lives. And we also brought the children of Weston Village. And the city of Toronto helped us close down the street to make it wonderfully inclusive for everybody and very safe because it wasn't Halloween and it was daytime and we shut down the street and it was the most beautiful sunny day you could imagine and we had music playing and magicians out and every kid and parent we had 700 people come over the span of the day were dressed to the nines in costumes as well and every human being there allowed us to film and take pictures of the event so we could share it in years to come and excite other neighborhoods to do this. Our goal is to have one of these at least in every city or town across Canada and the United States so children with disabilities can go and ensure that they have the same kind of door-to-door experience 
And it's already coming true, that dream, that vision. One of our guests on October 2nd lived in Caledon, and they've worked with the town of Caledon to have trick-or-treating, accessible trick-or-treating event, a treat-accessibly Halloween village, if you will, on Halloween Day. And his name is John Grow, and it's the town of Caledon organizing it. And it's just, I drove by to drop off some things yesterday, and there's a sign on every house, and it's just it's it's just a it's a beautiful thing to see, and it really lessens the weight of this movement when you see other people bringing it forward like that. Rich, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Happy Halloween, and thanks a lot for Happy chatting with Halloween. us today. Happy Halloween, everybody! Right? That's great. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Rich Padillo is the founder of the Treat Accessibly campaign. If you missed any of our conversation, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Nasreen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. Everyone have a happy Halloween, stay safe, and we'll talk to you again next week. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.